Welcome to the Heartbeat for Hire podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay Dowd. In my 25 years of sales experience, I've managed some of the most prestigious accounts in the world, negotiated multi-million dollar deals without sacrificing relationships, and built successful sales organizations where folks were knocking down the door to be a part of the rich, fun culture we created. My goal is to help train leaders and sales organizations how to manage and deliver results with empathy, compassion, and kindness. Each week, I'll share strategies you can take with you to invest in your people in a way that redefines the fabric of your sales organization and your company as a whole. I have an arsenal of tips and tricks up my sleeve and have a decorated sales career to leverage. Let's get started. Greetings and welcome to this episode of Heartbeat for Hire. Today's guest is Vince Walden. He is the CEO of Kona AI and is passionate about forensic data analytics and building leading AI-driven compliance technology, anti-fraud, anti-corruption, monitoring solutions. Vince won the Certified Fraud Examiner of the Year in 2022. He is a former partner of Ernst & Young and an adjunct professor at Fordham Law School. Vince is a regular columnist in Fraud Magazine, writing on innovation and anti-fraud. He is an author, podcast host, and former president of the ACFE Education and Research Foundation, and so many more things that I couldn't fit into this bio. Welcome, Vince. (laughs) Happy to have you here. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you for that warm introduction. And I'll also tell Vince was also a former client of mine and a friend. So it's an extra They're treat. Long time friends. Here, going right? back oh, probably almost, gosh, almost 10 years. Not quite, yeah, but yeah, back right. in the old IBM counter fraud days. That was that's cool. right. That's right. So obviously you didn't wake up and, and be born in Orange County and decide I'm going <laughs> into fraud. How did you find your way into that space? Uh, one word. I think it was Enron. <laughs> Um, no, truly. Um, after after graduating uh, college in Southern California, um, I went. To, I I knew I wanted to be a big at the time. I it was absolutely clear in my mind I wanted to be a big six at the time. Now big yeah. four partner someday, and that was my goal. When I grew up, I wanted to be a partner, and uh, so I went to. I knew at the time Arthur Anderson was the. The, the, the marquee accounting firm to go to. And so right after college, I um, applied and that was my, my main my main job. It was kind of funny, um, just a quick circle for those that going back way old school. I joined um, Arthur Anderson in 1997, I think. And prior to that, like two years before, I went to USC and the Orange County, California treasurer was a USC alumni. And he gave me a scholarship. It was like 2,500 bucks to, to USC, but it was still a scholarship. That was like beer money. <laughs> and um, lo and behold, while I was at USC, Orange County, California goes bankrupt. And he was the fall guy because he made some risky investments. And my first job out of, out of college was to work on the Orange County bankruptcy. And I'll never forget oh. my, my friend, Chris Pasca, still to this day, my friend and mentor, Chris Paskett, who was a partner at the time. Um, I was interviewing with him and I said, look, I have to work with you guys. It's fate. I got a, <laughs> I got a scholarship from Bob Citron. You guys are doing the bankruptcy. I got to come work for you. And uh, it was, that was ever since. So that was kind of cool. So you were and, at Arthur Anderson. You found your way to EY. How and that, then, how well, and then so, yeah. And so Enron really got me into the e-discovery litigation support investigations type work in forensic technology. Um, 
And uh, so I was with EY for, gosh, I was, I'm sorry, with Arthur Anderson for four or five years. I got the dot-com bug in 1999 and 2000 where I raised a half million bucks. I spent a half million bucks and I think God sold the company for a half million bucks. Um, <laughs> but, but then went right back to nice, safe Arthur Anderson and then Enron hit. Um, and, um, and then that's where really e-discovery took off. And um, when Arthur Anderson died in 2001, when they got taken over, KPMG acquired them. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, uh, everybody stayed in our little our little Cypress Technology Center in Southern California. The only thing that changed was our phone numbers and the, and the signs on the building. In fact, I got the, the U, everybody vied for the building numbers because it was a piece of history. So there was Arthur Anderson, and of course the partners got the capital A's, but I got the U in Arthur. I still have it <laughs> in my closet. <laughs> pretty cool but um but then uh then you know when kpmg acquired us and then six months uh, six years in 2006 is when i joined ey and basically gosh it was awesome um ey doubled my salary as a as a senior manager uh to to recruit me over to uh to to over them it was just a fantastic opportunity right. and i moved from southern california to texas and was with ey for gosh 15 years and um, you and, and they, i met in new york Right. And so you were a partner when we met. And as I remember it, um, you were really building a big team at the time, right? I mean, you because you were trying to build out this whole practice for EY. Can you talk a little about what you were trying to do? Yeah, building out for So what happened was it was a little bit of luck. And again, like I said, Enron started really put e-discovery on the map, um, you know, going through emails, going through documents. It was 19, uh, you know, 19. 1999, 2000 was Enron, 2001. Um, but then in in with with EY, they brought me in to do electronic discovery, doing just that, going through emails, etc. But I found that was turning into a commodity business, and where and in two and I wanted to make partner someday. That was my goal, remember? Right. And right. I needed to do something different. And just then, in 2009 ish. Um, this thing called Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, FCPA, mm-hmm. got to be really popular. And this is where we started to meet. Mm-hmm. But in 2009, I switched gears. I used all those e-discovery techniques around text mining and analytics and big data um, to apply to journal entries. Uh, because remember, back in my Arthur Anderson days, I got a CPA. I was, quote unquote, an accountant. Um, to me, that stands for could not pass again, but <laughs> CPA. But um, But yeah, I was a non-practicing accountant. And so I applied all those e-discovery skills to transactional data. And this is what I do today too. This became my passion and my distinguishing factor, which got me to partner in 2011. And you and I started working together, I think in 2012, but that was a a fundamental difference. And I think about for the audience listening and looking at your career, if you're competing for a position and there's five other people doing the exact same thing you are, then you need to find that blue ocean and go where they're not. And I, I, that was a huge eye opening to me of like, look, I'm never going to make partners and e-discovery guy because there's, there's plenty of people that do that. Yeah. But there wasn't a guy who could rip out data from an ERP system, like an SAP or Oracle and ERP is a financial accounting system, you know, um, that could rip out data put it into SQL database and build these beautiful tableau or these beautiful dashboards to find improper payments. And uh, with counter fraud, you had, we had a really automated way to do that. 
Yeah. So let's break it down for the, the listeners out there. Um, when we're, we're using a lot of big words and we're talking about e-discovery and those kinds of things, maybe you could illustrate by telling a story. We obviously know the Enron story, but maybe you could tell another story of something you discovered that really kind of fueled your passion of why this was such an important space. Because you told me dozens uh, and <laughs> I remember yeah, them. God, there's total, yeah, there's so many. Well, I'll, I'll use it in, in a current scenario. I mean, everybody knows that that smoking gun email when they read something in the Wall Street Journal, when they when they say, you know, the email found that right. such and such CEO or CFO did it, you know, um, and there were so many schemes around that. And, you know, and attorneys love to go to email when they do their review. Um, but when I do, uh, there's, you know, there are examples of what people put in a free text field of a journal entry. And think about this. Everybody knows you got to pay vendors. And that's done. If you ever take an accounting class, it's, you know, the accounts payable subledger. Now, that's not on everybody's mind every day, right? But everybody has to pay vendors if you're in business. Um, what people put in the free text field of a journal entry description, especially outside the United States, can be quite interesting. You know, when I see the word friend fee, what the hell's a friend fee? It's, you know, no one's going to book it as bribe expense. Right? You are not being paid to do this podcast, by yeah. the way. So we're yeah. Clear. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Friend fee, um, help payment. I've seen, you know, are you a friend in camp? And it's funny, uh, globally, there's local idioms and local dialects and culture that determines how to say bribe in many languages. You know, in the United States, I say, hey, can you give me, a, it's a grease payment, you know, greasing the wheels. Mm -hmm. But literally, if you say that in Spanish, they're like, what, slimy payment that, that they take that literally or um, in, in in South Africa, it's respect payment. Hey, man, show me some respect. You know, mm -hmm. in, in, in Brazil, in Portuguese, it's the, the subtle word is, hey, can you buy me a cup of coffee? Which means in the U.S. kind of like, hey, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yeah. yours. There's all these dialects. It really makes it fascinating. Um and, and capturing those words and being able to scan those words um, and look for the type of idioms and language in journal entry descriptions, which are short, which is only like two or three words. But being able to cone in on that is a great way to find corrupt intent and potential bribe payments. And it's been, that was a game changer in my career. So you would find these little idioms and recognize patterns. And I think when we were starting to work together, we were really focused on using artificial intelligence to really kind of comb through vast amounts of data to really let those come to the top. And, right. and then you could hone in on, oh, I think this guy's a troublemaker. Let's go and do some more investigation. Am I yeah. tracking right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. For, for the audience too. <laughs> Don't let artificial intelligence get to sound too overwhelming or, or machine learning. Basically, just remember, find more like this. <laughs> well, in, in my business, it's find me more like this. So if I can identify, you know, 10, 20, 50 transactions that I know are improper payments, I can then study those. And this works both in, you know, e-discovery, looking at emails and also with transactions, um, if I can find five or 10, you know, smoking documents or smoking right. transactions, I can build a machine learning model that says, all right, look at everything in that. Look at everything in those transactions. What do they have in common? You know, maybe there's round dollar amounts, or maybe they have certain words like that friend fee word, or maybe they're all statistically anomalous yeah. compared to the average of other transactions. And then find me more like this. We'll go out to the larger population bring statistically similar transactions back within a confidence interval, you know, 95 or 
90%, you know, statistically similar and that's, and then bring that back in. I mean, it's really powerful for investigations or looking for errors um, or, you know, how we scan for accounting data. So in my nerdy world, that's kind of how we use machine learning. <laughs> So I've been in your nerdy world and um, we got to speak together at the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, oh, which yeah. was a total yeah. highlight for my career. And um, I can't believe fun. we we had we packed a room of 400 people on a Sunday for like hours. Uh, and it was yeah. it was a lot of fun. But um, well, and on the flip side, that was your that might have been your highlight. Um, but you got me to speak at the IBM big partner conference right. in front of like 20,000 people. Yeah. That, that was my highlight. So it's yeah. mutual. So you 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 were at EY, you left EY, you went to um a, another law firm and you were doing similar stuff to the e-discovery and all of that. And now you're CEO of Kona AI. What is Kona AI about? Yeah, yeah. When I left EY, actually, it wasn't another law firm. It was Alvarez and Marcel, which is another professional services firm. They they do basically everything the big four do does except audit. So I don't Got have it. conflicts. And they were a a, a really cool. They they'd been known for turnaround, uh, you know, and restructuring, uh, but in New York. And what's funny is how I, this is how it led to Kona AI. Remember at EY, my whole you know I was making you know I was making doing pretty good, ripping financial accounting systems out dumping him into SQL, putting it into Tableau and giving them insights and finding improper payments. And then, you know, charging $250,000 for that with right. my team and I, and it would take, it would, every time to do that, it would take six to eight weeks to do it. Yeah. And this is how Kona AI started really. Um, when I went to Alvarez, we didn't have those tools in place and the right. capabilities, but that's what they hired me to build. So I went to a dear friend of mine, um, Anil Kona, I don't know if you met Anil. You might have met Anil. He ran know. our India practice at EY. And he um, he had saved my butt on some of the biggest investigations way back at EY because he could technically build anything with his team. And I went to Anil and Anil had just recently left EY to start his own consulting and e-discovery and technology company. And I said, Anil, help me out. Can you build me my dream platform? You know what I do. Build me my dream platform. And he's like, you know, in this beautiful Indian accent, yeah, yeah, sure, Vince, we'll do it. And I said, by the way, I can't pay you. I have no money, but can you still build it? And I'm like, I'll pay you per project. And this is what was so cool. He's like, yeah, fine, <laughs> we'll do it. And in three months, he built the foundation that was refined over a year. But we got this platform that could do back in my EY days, but would take six to eight weeks to process data it could do in six to eight days. It was a 10X factor. It was awesome. And so at Alvarez and Marcel, I took that product and I was able to sell, um, they call, we called it digital twin, Alvarez and Marcel digital twin, which was basically me white labeling this technology. And at the time he goes, Vince, why are you with Alvarez? Just come work with me and be the CEO and run the company. And I'm like, dude, I need a paycheck. No, <laughs> I'm, I'm fine at Alvarez. It's a great firm. And so for the next three years, I was, my main business was using this technology for Alvarez as a service, you know, to find transactions for companies. And it was great. Um, and then finally, I realized the technology kept improving, improving, and things got more efficient. And I'm like, you know what, what am I doing? There are a ton of other service providers, um, in addition to Alvarez and Marcel, and companies just want this directly. This is a really good stuff. And I'm like, Anil, 
let's let's revisit that. And he was thrilled. And uh, in uh, in May of this year, uh, he I, you know he we negotiated we negotiated some stock and and got this put in place. And now I'm CEO running the company, and it couldn't have been more fun. Because yeah, this was the year that the ACFE gave me ACFE awarded me ACFE of the year of the year for all the work that I'd done for them, and you know as a consultant that would have been yeah great fine, but as a startup CEO of a company that was huge, and um, and that worked turned out Good really timing. Good. So. Good timing. So you you've talked about it a little bit already, but I want to kind of hone in. You're a master of building relationships and your relationships have carried you from college all the way through to now. And I just think um, when, when speaking about culture and about leadership, I just would love to hear your perspective on how important those, those relationships have been and, you know, why that's been such a focus for you. Ah, you know, Lindsay, you, you trade on your name and it's so true. Um, Excuse me for saying the word, you know, don't be an asshole. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And there's plenty of them out there. Um, and what I found was, and again, this is maybe my dad and my Christian upbringing bringing of servant leadership or servant, yeah. you know, how can I help you? Um, and I had a mentor actually in high school. Um, his name was Jeffrey Joseph. I haven't spoken to him in years, but he taught me this fact that he taught me this point of, look, just get people to talk. Don't talk about you. Yeah. And here we are on my podcast show talking about me. This is against my grain here, but don't talk about you. Talk about, have other people, you know, you want to get other people to talk. And when yeah. they do, they think it's the greatest conversation ever. Yeah. And, you know, remember that old book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, sure. that Carnegie book? That still rings true today. Yeah. And I think one of the things, I mean, what has stick with me and the reason, thank God, I mean, I'm still very, very good friends with my EY partners because, again, they were my partners. Right. There's something special about that relationship. And I'm and same with a and I you never want to build to have a burnt bridge. And right. had I not fostered that relationships with Anil, this would have never happened. Um, and, you know, so I think it, it's making sure you send an email every so often to your clients, to your colleagues. Hey, I'm just thinking about you. I'm not trying to ask for anything. I'm not trying to sell you anything. Yeah, I just want to just, in. I care about you and check yeah. in and fostering those relationships. I mean, look at us. We, we still keep in touch. I know. And you were, I was, you were my client. So I, yeah. I think that's just really telling of just that's who been you the are secret. Or, what we, it's what no we've secret. done. That, that's yep. great. And, and I love that. And I think it's just a, it's a fundamental part of leadership. And, you know, now you're in a CEO position. When I met you, you were leading a really big team and that team had to do really, really tough things and very hard work. How did you inspire them? What were kind of your leadership practices that that you leveraged? Ah, you know, we had a theme, and especially back in the UI days, if we don't innovate every six months, we're dead. Mm. And and that got people motivated. That was like, if we don't create something new and cool, a new test idea or new graphic or new technology or something, if we don't ever innovate every six months, we're dead. That was a cool theme that we had in our lab (laughs) back in the day. And that kept him motivated. So it kept the, the innovation was a was a key piece of keeping the team motivated. And look, I would go to my team. You know, what can I do to help you? Yeah. What do you need from me? Um, I remember seeing the partner. There's an old saying in the big four accounting words called a seagull partner. And Arthur Anderson had lots of them. Seagull partners are the partners that you never see. They're just high up on on house. I don't 
high up there and you never see them. You work your butt off in some dark lab or dark dungeon room. And then every so once a month or every so often, you'll never see it. Maybe at the client, all of a sudden the partner will show up one day and they circle around and they shit on everything and then they leave. And it's called a seagull partner. And I, you see this. It's like you never see the partner. Uh, then they bust in. They circle around. They shit on everything. Fix this. Blah, 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 and then they go. And you're like, what the hell was that? <laughs> and I saw I never wanted to be a seagull partner. No. And, and it, that was, a, it, I'm sure everybody could think of a manager or something oh, that happened. Oh, no question. And that's yeah. something that, that I talk so much about. Because as a leader, you have choices, just like you do as an employee. And how you choose to inspire and motivate your people is up to you. And to your point earlier, you know, your personal brand is when you leave the room, yeah. what people say about you. So yeah. if yes. you are- what do they say behind your back? Is what exactly. Is so if you're the seagull partner, they're probably not speaking too kindly of you, and they're probably not looking forward to working for you. Right. Um, and and I think that's such a, an admirable admirable quality that you have, and such an important quality for other leaders and aspiring leaders. You know, think about that lasting impression after you've left the room. What are people saying about you? Did you make them feel good? And yeah. You know, I think that's a critical piece to to leadership, and you've done that really well. Well, and, and well, thank you. Yeah, I, you know, and I'm, it's kind of cool to say that, like, my team, the team I'm building, my dream team at Kona AI, um, and most of the team are people that have worked for me and with me in the past, um, either yeah. either where I was their boss, or I, again, I've got. A friend of mine, Jonathan Nystrom on the team yep. that many of our audience knows, and he's working with me um, in business development and helping with this MIT research project that we're doing. And, um, and it, you know, it's great. And, and mainly it's because we've kept the relationships going. Yeah. You gave me a perfect lead in to my question about collaboration. And you've done a lot of collaborations. You collaborate with MIT. You've been an adjunct professor at Fordham Law. Talk about collaborating and why that's such a fundamental piece to your success. Well, thank you. Well, I go back to that. If we don't innovate every six months, we're dead. One of the reasons why I love writing for Fraud Magazine, and most of your audience probably never heard of Fraud Magazine. Who would name their audience? Who would name their magazine Fraud? <laughs> but, but I'll tell you, the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners uh, names their magazine Fraud. Yeah. Um, and um, and so, and again, in our little world, our circle, there's 85,000 readers of Fraud Magazine around the world, which is a great audience for me. And every other month, I've been doing this for three years now. Uh, actually, God, four years. I'm up to my like 35th article every other year, right? Nice. Um, and every six, every two months, though, I have to write something new <laughs> on technology or innovation. And it's kept me, it forces me to think like what's new and cool that I can write about. Um, and the, and the one I'm, that I'm passionate about, what I think the readers will be interested in. And they mm -hmm. thank God they've kept me around all this time with my column. Um, it's one of those things, you know, I would say do things that force you to think outside the box and mm. do new things. Um, Cause like I said, remember, you're never going to make partner if you're doing everything else, like it, what everybody else is doing. Even if you're yeah. a swell guy, I don't care if you're a swell person, <laughs> man or woman, doesn't matter. You, you got to do something. That's, you got to stand out. You got to stand out. Yeah. I love that. Um, so how do you stay ahead? I mean, obviously fraud is a ever-changing space. There's always new schemes. There's always new 
pariahs out there, how do you stay ahead? And I mean, you, you said that you have to contribute these articles all the time. That could be uh, exhausting. How do you do that? Well, staying ahead, again, out innovating, look at the, look, know your market and know what, who the players are um, and go where they're not. Mm. And again, I, you know, I think I, I did read, I read the book um, and I think I took a class on it. EY had that, you know, that, that whole blue ocean strategy, mm-hmm. which is the red ocean is a whole bunch of sharks and there's lots of blood in the water because those are all competitors. Go find the blue ocean. And the, the classic blue ocean was Cirque de Soleil. It was again in the book. Now it would now it would be Uber, right? But yeah. Cirque de Soleil was everything about the circus that you liked and everything about theater that you liked mm-hmm. put together into a new category, right? Which was Cirque de Soleil that, that no one else lived in because circus was a red ocean. Theater, think about how many competitions in Broadway. That was a, blue, a perfect example. And so go where they're not. In fact, in my compliance platform, the entire compliance industry is focused on, and again, I'll be real brief because this is kind of nerdy, but every chief compliance officer, every internal audit or or most compliance tools do everything before the contract is signed with the third party. So everything around, you know, who know your vendor, uh, third party due diligence, the AML screening, making sure that the person's not bad. And those are things that attorneys love to do. But guess what? AML is anti-money laundering. AML is anti-money laundering. The banks have to do it. But that's all doing business before the contract is signed. But guess where the fraud happens? Fraud happens doesn't doesn't happen before you negotiate the contract. It happens after you negotiate the contract. And that's where the payments happen. But that's, oh, that's the accountant's job. We don't look at that. And I'm like, wrong. Mm. That's where, that's what you have to monitor. So Kona AI looks at the Look, takes a compliance lens, not an audit lens, but a compliance officer's lens and looks at the payments and the transactions to identify improper, um, you know, corrupt intent payments, not the due diligence parts. And that's a total blue ocean. There's really mm-hmm. no other competitors in that space, which really has the, which has the, um, which is a great differentiator. And it's got the regulator's attention, even the guidance. It's always nice when your solution aligns with what the Department of Justice says companies need to have. Mm-hmm. And they have to do this. Um, so it's really exciting to be in a place where there's not much competition and it aligns with best practices from what the regulators are looking at. I love it. So you've seen some pretty horrible acts of humanity <laughs> with all the fraud stuff you've seen. Uh, yeah. And you you managed to stay really positive. How do you do that? Oh, I don't, well, I don't let the, look, I'm in the numbers and the transactional data. Um, I, you know, sometimes I get to interview people, but other, the attorneys get to interview the people. So I just look at the data. So it's fun. It. I, yeah. yeah, I get to separate that. Yeah, but, that's good. I mean, uh, that's, that's hard to do. Cause I mean, you, the stories that you guys used to tell me of like what you would discover find, and the yeah. amount of theft and the amount of just shady dealings that you you just kind of, oh, it, it takes your breath away. Yeah. Well, it motivates you to find it. Yeah. Um, but it also makes you mad. I'll just, in one case, I'll just remember it was a not-for-profit, which that makes me mad. Yeah. And um, and again, simple analytics. We matched on a phone number of the spouse. I think I told you the story of, you know, all you, we looked at the payments to vendors and looked at the vendor phone number, happened to match not the executive director's phone number, because he's not that stupid, but it was his <laughs> wife's phone number as a fake vendor. Uh, so he was, he set up a fake company and channeled like over $2 million to his wife, who his wife's company 
that wasn't really providing a service. It was a shell company. Oh my and man, when the, when the board of trustees, you know, saw that it just, they went through the roof to know that your executive director was basically stealing, you know, stealing from you. Um, it just, it's a undervalues the trust factor of a not-for-profit. <sighs> and th- those are the things that just make you mad, but, um, but also motivate you. So I know no one in my, my audience would be thinking about any of these things, but warn your friends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very bad thing. So Vince, separate topic. What inspires you? What keeps you, what keeps your engine running? Well, right now growing this company, um, pipelines motivates me <laughs> doing demos motivates me and talking to companies. Um, it's so much fun. And uh, you, you remember me, even as a partner at EY, I was demo boy. Mm-hmm. Give me counter with counter fraud. I love giving demos. I love yeah. talking to people. And like I said, it's not my first slide is not, Hey, we're Kona AI. This is why we're great. My first slide is tell me about you and your compliance program. Where do you want to go? What are your goals? And if, you know, I can always, and if you give me that information, that is so valuable because yeah. then I can tailor and shift and modify my presentation to talk about what you're interested in. Yeah. You can do um, the show me, you know, me piece. Yeah. Which is so important. Yeah. There was that old Mahan. It was, a, I think it was an Arthur Anderson book that we had to read. Mahan, I forgot Maham, Alatma, but it was a book called let's get real or let's not play. Mm-hmm. And it would say something. It was basically, look, you could have the best lawnmower in the entire world. It does everything. It has all the bells and whistles and it's super affordable. It's the best lawnmower ever. But if you have a rock garden or a Chinese garden, I don't give a damn how good your lawnmower is. I have gravel. So don't try to sell me your lawnmower. And and being able to find that out rather than immediately jumping in and talking about your lawnmower uh, can can, can save you a lot of time and trouble. Yeah, I, I believe that. Um, all right. So talk to me a little bit about culture and how culture has played in through all your various roles throughout the years. Like what, what was important to you? What were some of the good lessons you learned that you'd share with the audience? Culture. Um, well, that innovate, you got to have fun. Um, I think you got to keep that light at light culture. Something yeah. I learned in, in actually in at USC at business school we had this speaker, it was a leadership class taught by Warren Bennis, he, who he passed away about 10 years ago, I think, but I'll never forget his class. It was an honors course in leadership. And it was taught by him and Dr. Stephen Sample, who was the president of the university. It was an awesome class. Basically, they, they talked about this rule number six, which was don't take yourself so damn seriously. Don't be, yeah, don't, and, and so when you, you know, if you took, you know, don't, because otherwise you become a jerk right? Um, you got to keep it light, even when like when there's bombs going off and it's hard. I mean, now it doesn't mean don't take things not seriously. You got to take the work seriously, but you don't. Yeah, but you don't make it personal and you don't and you got to keep it fun and, and you got to be approachable. Yeah, and, I think um, that's, so that's key. Don't you- take yourself too seriously. You've done a good job of that. I think whenever there's a um, a really tough job at hand, removing those obstacles from your team, letting them know you're there for you and, and infusing fun um, has always been kind of a, a, a beacon of your style, which I think is really cool. Um, uh, yeah, but- I had a colleague of mine who just spent, well, someone on my team who just spent three months in India training the team. So I've got about a dozen, actually two dozen uh, professionals in India doing a lot of my development and data processing. Um, and 
you know, he had spent, he lives, he's here in the U S and he just spent several months there. And, um, I was like, man, you know, yeah, money's one thing, but a good bottle of 18 McAllen (laughs) says it all. And I'll never forget. There was a great, there was the best advertisement I ever saw, uh, was in a subway in New York city. And it, it was a bottle, it was a bottle of Johnny Walker blue label. It's kind of funny. And it said, how to tell your father-in-law you love him without saying a word. The best, <laughs> a Johnny Walker, and that's just Johnny Walker blue label. Isn't that true? It's like, you know, because you wouldn't go to your father-in-law and just say, oh, I love you, dad, or whatever, because it's awkward because we're dudes. But giving him a blue label tells you, I love you. <laughs> and and oh, like my, my guy is like, well, yes, I give you money, but no, that's like, here, I am so grateful. You know, here's, you know, here's McAllen. <laughs> Those are the things that stick out. And he never, he didn't forget that. I love that. Um, so what would you like your legacy to be? Oh, my legacy, um, professional, well, just my kid, have my kids not think I'm a jerk and, you know, and like me and have fun with my kids and my family. That's my legacy. And maybe a garden, some good tomato plants. Um, <laughs> That's a good legacy. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, and really, I'm not so concerned about legacy because that's an ego thing to me. I, I mean, I'm sure people, it, it's, it's important. Um, I'd like to have a good name at the, you know, with the ACFE, it's where I've invested a lot of my time and they've been mm-hmm. just fantastic to me and helped me with my career. Um, so I want to continue to help with them, but I don't need a legacy. I, I truly don't. I, I don't look at it as an ego thing. I look at it as more like your personal brand when you've left. Oh. The room. Yes. Okay. Oh, what yes. do people say about you? Yeah, Vince Walden is not. Yeah, Vince Walden is not an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're on your way, friend. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, no, and and really, that's. I just want to be able to trade on my name. Yeah, and it's so. And I every so often I check on this and, and like, hey, you know, I know I can tell it's working when people want to work with me and people seek sure. me out. That's huge. Um, and it's funny, I, I was on a conversation, I was asking the ACFE on something about six months ago. And I said, when you think of the word forensic data analytics, whose face do you think of? And, and that was my gut check. Of, well, of course, Vince, we think of you. Yes. That's bingo. The, uh, bingo. That's what I want uh, people to say yeah. about me and sales culture. So yeah, there you go. When, when you think <laughs> of, you know, I want to be your Kleenex. I want to be, I want to be the Kleenex yeah. of tissue. So, I mean, when you think of Data analytics in a fraud context, you should think of my face. Awesome. And, and and that's that's I guess, yeah, not legacy, but that's my brand. Yeah. That's what I want to make sure I have is my brand. I love yeah. it. So Vince, where can people go to find more information about you? Ah, um, well, um, my again, Kona AI, www.konaai. Uh, one word, K-O-N-A-A-I.com is information about our company. Look me up on LinkedIn. Shoot me a message, Vincent Walden, um, you know, Kona AI. And I'd love to start a dialogue or happy to chat if anybody uh, anybody has questions. Or if you want me to rip apart your accounts payable or your sales data, I'll tell you, no one no one tears apart accounting data like me, man. I rip through that stuff. I love it. He is it. good at it. <laughs> Vince, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for being a guest on Heartbeat for Hire. And um, I'm excited that you were here. This is a lot of fun. Lindsay, thank you so much. Always a pleasure. And when we get to when we when I get to Boston, let's go get some oysters or something. You got it. You got <laughs> All it. Right. Thanks, everybody. Bye, everybody.
Thanks for listening to Heartbeat for Hire. If you like what you hear, I'd love it if you'd subscribe and leave a five-star review. To keep the conversation going, you can find me on Insta or at LinkedIn at Lindsay Dowd, H4H, or you can reach me at my website, heartbeatforhire.com. Thanks so much. Have a great day.